Hi folks, welcome to this week's edition of the Finance Hour. The topic of this week's show is Supersize Me, scaling up big time with private equity. We have a great discussion with Simon Faglin, who is the managing partner of the Riverside Company, which is a leading private equity firm. Simon will explain what private equity is and how he works with businesses to double their revenue and triple their profit in three years. Simon gives a great example of a very well-known company that he has helped grow enormously. So listen for that. Simon will also give us his take on the arrival of Amazon and other disruptive businesses in Australia. And he gives us his three tips for business owners to scale rapidly. Don't forget to listen to my Propeller Head of the Week at the end where I talk about the need to review your health insurance. And as a bonus, at the very beginning... I will give you my take on the royal witch hunt which the government recently announced. Thanks and enjoy the show. Good afternoon and welcome to the Finance Hour. Whether you're listening live on JR or indeed on our podcast, This is the show where we try and make sense of the world of business and personal finance and hopefully help you make better decisions. My name's Ruben Zelwa. I'm the financial planner and owner at Adapt Wealth Management. We're a boutique financial planning firm that work with business owners, professionals and those planning for retirement. But just as importantly or more importantly, I'm the host of this show, The Finance Hour, which is available on iTunes uh, and also available on my website, adaptwealth.com.au slash podcast. And I welcome you to listen to all the past episodes. And if you're feeling like it, please leave me a message uh, or actually even better, give me a review on iTunes. That'll just mean that we can get more popular and reach more people. Now, I've got to just give you the general advice warning. Nothing that I say today uh, should be treated as personal advice. We're just having a general chat uh, before you go and implement anything. You're doing it at your own risk or might be a good idea to get some advice from somebody who you think knows what they're talking about. Maybe an accountant, maybe a financial planner, maybe a lawyer. But don't just rely on what I'm saying today. So uh, before we get into the main uh, topic of the show, uh, which is scale me up big time with private equity, I am going to just give you a bit of a a chat about what's been happening in the world of business and finance. And what's been happening is, and we've talked about banks a lot on this show, but what's been happening is the government just announced a few days ago that there is going to be a royal commission into banks Uh, financial services generally, and superannuation. And this is going to cost you, the taxpayer, $75 million uh, and will be concluded in a 12-month period. Now, this Royal Commission I would like to rename as a Royal Witch Hunt. It is going to be an enormous waste of your taxpayer dollars and I'm going to give you four reasons why this Royal Commission is going to be a fail. Number one, It's a political football. Nobody wants this Royal Commission. The government doesn't want it. They were dragged kicking and screaming. The banks don't want it. 
even though they ended up caving in because they felt they had to. And the opposition doesn't want it because they say it's not broad enough. So no one's going to be happy with the outcomes of this. Number two, uh, we've had so many inquiries and reports into the financial system over the last 20 years. There's been more than 30. There are parliamentary inquiries all the time. Uh, You know, it goes on and on and on. And a lot of those things haven't been implemented because they weren't practical. And there's still things to be implemented. So why are we doing another investigation? Let's also not forget that our banks were the best performing in the world during the GFC. And that was to everyone's benefit. Number three, I think this Royal Commission is going to reduce confidence in the system even more. For the majority of people, the banking and super system is working just fine. Right, But now, as a result of this Royal Commission, a lot more people are going to get a lot more suspicious about it, and that's not a good thing. And the fourth reason why this Royal Commission is going to be a waste of time is that it's going to give false hope to people who received bad advice. Everyone's getting on the bandwagon and thinking this is going to fix it. It's not. They're not going to look at individual cases. They're going to look at the broad, general things in the system and people are going to be disappointed so those are my four reasons why i think a royal witch hunt uh, or royal commission is going to be a complete waste of time anyway now that that's off my chest let me talk a bit about what's going to be on the show today so the topic of the show today is scale me up big time with private equity. Now, we've talked a bit about uh, businesses on previous episodes. In episode 19, uh, we talked with Stuart Bell about a guide for business owners to do things better, easier, and faster using technology. And just last week, we had a fantastic discussion with Timbo Reid about small businesses harnessing big marketing. But now we're going to put businesses on steroids and talk about how private equity uh, can can grow businesses enormously. And to do that talking, we have Simon Faglin. Simon is the managing partner and fund manager at Riverside Company. It's a private equity uh, business that invests in small and medium-sized companies, and they call small and medium-sized uh, businesses that are valued at less than $150 million. So that's still pretty big. But that's what they're focused on, and they look at companies in Australia, New Zealand, and Asia. So I'm looking forward to having a good chat with Simon about how private equity you know, rapidly, rapidly can scale up businesses and what role that he's had in that. So we're just going to have a quick music break, and then I will get Simon on the phone. Hi, folks. Welcome back to the Finance Hour, whether you're listening live on Jair or on our podcast. It's Ruben Zelwa here, and today the topic of the show is Scale Me Up Big Time with Private Equity. And to do uh, our interview today, we have Simon Faglin. Simon is the managing partner and fund manager at the Riverside Company, and Simon specializes in investing in small and medium-sized companies, and they classify that as businesses with a value of less than $150 million. Uh, and Simon specializes in companies based in Australia, New Zealand, and Asia. Simon, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ruben. Good to be here. Excellent. Now, Simon, the very first question is the uh, is probably the dumb question, but can you please explain to our listeners what private equity actually is? 
Sure. Uh, I'd love to. And to put it simply, private equity is investing in the equity of private companies. Uh, yeah. So contrasting that to the public markets, uh, which is what we're all used to doing in the share markets, what we do is we invest in private companies whose shares are not available on the market. Um, and obviously the role that we play in those businesses would be very different because they're private companies. Right. We are much more actively involved. We tend to be control investors, working very closely with the management teams, uh, so we can actually influence the outcome of a business much more than simply buying shares in the public market. So does private equity, does it eventually become public? Do Is there eventually a sellout and these investments are then listed on the market and anyone can invest in them, or do they stay, do they stay in private hands long term? It depends, really. Uh, where we play, the kinds of companies we invest in, as you mentioned earlier, tend to be smaller companies. Uh, we tend to own the companies that we invest in for an average of about five years. Yeah. Uh, and when we so we are investors, so ultimately we do need to sell our investments. Uh, and when we sell those companies, it is very rare for us to take them public. Usually, even when we're done, if we buy a company that's small and grow it, it's still relatively small to be listed. Yeah. Uh, and so when we sell a business, we tend to sell it either to another financial buyer who might sort of play in that next stage up, and they ultimately might look to list the company, or we sell it to a trade buyer uh, who is look, sees it as a core asset with, within their strategy. Okay. Well, let me, before we get uh, stuck into some more detail, I'm interested in learning a bit about your journey to get where you are, because I, I doubt that as a, uh, a 10 or a 12-year-old, you woke up one day and said, I want to be a private equity fund manager. Uh, it's you know, maybe you said you were going to be a fireman, but I doubt you said that. So tell me a little bit about uh, how you ended up, you know, doing what you're doing, what path you took. Sure. Uh, the accent's probably a bit of a giveaway. I spent most of my life in North America. Um, well, I'm an Aussie by birth. Uh, when I was young, moved to Canada and ultimately the U.S. and grew yeah. up and was educated in the U.S. and I'm not sure everyone wanted to be a fireman. I think it was more more dreaming about being a basketball player until I realized I actually didn't have the talent to do that. But yeah. uh, um, in, in university, I, I sort of gravitated towards, in America, what we call business here, what we call commerce. Um, yeah. Kind of uh, wasn't, wasn't a grand plan. It was just you know taking courses and ultimately deciding that that's what I enjoyed uh, and started my career in investment banking. And that was really just on the premise that I didn't know what I wanted to do. And that was an opportunity to work uh, in an industry where you saw a lot of different companies, a lot of different challenges. And relatively early in my career, I could expose, be exposed to a lot of different things. And um, one of the things I was exposed to was you know, representing companies who were looking at private equity as an option and, and sort of by accident learned about the industry. I didn't know about it when I was 12. In fact, I had probably never heard about the industry until I was about 22 or 23 years old and um, ended up getting a job in the industry after spending two years in investment banking and 20-plus years later, still here. So, uh, as you said, you've got an American accent. So what actually brought you to Australia? And was it the work that brought you here or some other reason? You obviously had some connections because you you were born here. Yeah, no, exactly. I, I do have I, I do have family in Melbourne, and that's you know specifically what brought me to Melbourne. But the opportunity I've been with the Riverside Company for uh, over a decade now, uh, and about well, really about eight or nine years ago, we decided to expand into Asia uh, and wanted to explore Australia as part of that strategy. And given that I had connections here. Uh, that made me a resi- the resident guru within Riverside on Australia. And so I came down here for what was supposed to be two or three years to uh, uh, set up an office here. And my wife and family and I fell in love with uh, Australia in general, Melbourne in particular, and can't see ourselves leaving. So eight years later, we're still here. There you go. 
Okay, well, so I'm just to give you a bit of context in terms of shows that we've done before. Uh, we've done episode uh, 19, which was a guide for business owners to do things better, easier and faster using technology. And then uh, just last week, we had an interview uh, with a guy by the name of Timbo Reed, who runs the biggest uh, small business marketing show. And that was all about how small businesses uh, can leverage and do and big marketing. Uh, so we've talked a bit about scaling up, but I'm calling the topic of this episode, uh, Scale Me Up Big Time, because I'm guessing that when you go into uh, companies, uh, you're not looking just to grow it from you know five people to 10 people, or from say one milk bar to three milk bars. I'm guessing you're trying to scale them up you know, way, way bigger than that. Can you give us some idea of the sort of growth that you know, when you buy into a company that you're looking for? Sure. Um, look, so when we, the, the starting point when we invest in a business is it typically is doing uh, somewhere between 4 and $15 million of annual EBITDA or annual uh, sort of pre-tax profits. Yeah. Uh, and loose rule of thumb, that probably translates into a company at the low end that might be doing 15 or $20 million of turnover, and at the upper end, again, depending on the industry and the margins, maybe it's $100 million of turnover. But the average company, I'd say, is probably doing, say, 25 or $30 million of turnover. Yeah. And uh, we, over the five years, on average, that we invest in a business, I'm looking to see a business that can double the top line and triple the bottom line. Very loose rule of thumb, and obviously it varies, but, but that's the kind of growth we're looking for. So over five years, can you double your business by doing what you're doing better, more of it, or maybe expanding what you do to do some other things that are related, you know, sort of in ancillary areas? And, and tell me, how do you actually find these businesses? Do they, do they find you, or do you find them? Why would they uh, want to sacrifice, you know, living a reasonable lifestyle and you know, going down to the beach to... To, to be involved in a, a business that wants to, you know, make them work hard and scale it up, you know, hugely. Why do they actually come to you in the first place? Yeah. Uh, so a couple of questions embedded within that. So in terms of how we find those companies, let me address that one very quickly first. Uh, there's no right answer. I mean, we do a lot of sort of marketing of ourselves and trying to get the word out there, what we do, so, you know, so talking to folks like you, Ruben, talking to accountants, attorneys, yeah. investment bankers, uh, you know, describing what we do and what we look for. Uh, a lot of folks do come to us uh, who, you know, who have sort of read about us or heard about us and have businesses that might be interesting. So, it, uh, you know, I, I don't really care whether I call you or you call me as long as we're interested in having a conversation. It's, it's worthwhile. Yeah. In terms of why someone would want to do a deal with us, uh, to, to oversimplify, I think people, uh, owners of mid-market businesses fall in, that are interested in private equity typically fall into one of two categories. The first category is the sort of the 65-year-old-ish, you know, the person who's ready to retire. And yeah. they sort of run their business, they started it, they founded it, they grew it, they ran it for 20, 30, 40 years, and now they're done. You know, they're ready to move on and they just want liquidity. And, and their kids know, don't want to come in and... and and take over the business is that a is that a common thing as well yeah yeah certainly that can be the case or look it could be big enough business you've got several kids maybe only one or two kids are in the business the others aren't so what's the right way to do it how do you create liquidity so that you can treat your kids fairly right. uh, and an option is potentially to sell the business uh, and so, you know, but it could also be that they don't have you know kids that are interested in the business or you know or, or you know there, there may be other sort of extraneous factors things that are going on in the market that they sort of feel like better just to sell now um, and so that's one phenomenon but the more common phenomenon I'd say it's probably about two-thirds or three-quarters of the investments do we make 
is not the 65-year-old or 70-year-old who's retiring. It's probably the 50 or 55-year-old who is thinking, at some point, I'm going to want to retire, but I'm not ready yet. I've, you know, I have a nice business. I'm generating. You know, if you own a business and you're generating, as I said before, five, seven, eight million dollars a year pre-tax profits, you got a pretty good lifestyle. Yeah. But you may be looking, saying things are changing, right? There may be some external factor, a competitor who's doing something, some challenge from offshore. Yeah. I just want a new customer. I lost a customer or a supplier, whatever the case may be. But things look like they're changing a bit, and and I'm not really quite sure what I want to do, or maybe I don't really. You know, I own 100 percent of the business, so every dollar I invest in my business is a dollar out of my own pocket pocket. Maybe I don't just don't have the risk appetite anymore now that I'm in my 50s. So let me find a partner, take some money off the table so I know my mortgage is set, kids' school fees are covered, mm. you know, those sorts of things. Now what would you do? Would you be willing to swing for the fences a little bit? And if you are, maybe that's where we can come in and help you. You know, So every decision you make is not spending 100 cents of your money, your dollar. Maybe you keep 30 or 40% of the business. We buy 60 or 70%. And so now, alongside us, you're betting our money along with yours. What are the things that you would do? And that's really what we're trying to do is change the risk profile of a business owner. So their downside's protected. They take money off the table but still have the opportunity to kind of drive for that, that, that greater play in an ever-changing world. So, so what's interesting about what you said there is you'll sometimes you know, go into businesses that are experiencing challenges, because my guess would have been yeah, that you want to go into businesses that are just shooting the lights out and you can take them further, but you're actually happy to go into businesses that, that are, are maybe you know, that, are, that are having some difficulty. Well, it's, it's a nuance there, and to be mm. fair, look, we don't do turnaround, so I'm not interested in investing in a broken business. Right. When I say a challenge, uh, look, you know, I can I can give you many examples, um, but just you know, for a hypothetical example, for a second, right, businesses that have been operating for a while that have been very successful in Australia, all of a sudden, as of two days ago, Amazon is here. Right, yeah. So there's a challenge. It could be an opportunity for a business, but it's also a challenge. And if you're sitting mm. there going, well, what do I do now in this new world with Amazon? Right. Well, you know, we've, we've been operating globally for almost 30 years now. Uh, you know, we've seen businesses that have gone up against Amazon in the U.S. and Canada and Europe. We've got some insights and some perspectives and experience that we can share. And so maybe we're a good partner to help you figure out how you navigate that challenge. A challenge isn't necessarily that you're broken. It's that Things are changing, and how do you want to respond in that new world? That's in, that's interesting because I suppose a lot of people are talking about Amazon as coming here and disrupting the big retailers, the Harvey Normans, the Myers, etc. So do you, you know? And we talk about disruption a lot, and I think it's a word that gets bandied around too much. Any you know, any business that is doing something new, people like to label themselves themselves as disruptors. But having said that, what's your experience in terms of disruptors coming in is it is it happening a lot more than maybe what it did you know 10 or 15 years ago and what role does technology play in that uh, i think i think absolutely uh it's much greater and i think it's, it's very much driven by technology the world it's not a term that, 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 that i've coined but it's a term we've all heard before the world is flatter right you know information moves much more readily uh it's uh you know things that might have taken years before to understand what was happening elsewhere in the world you now understand in minutes uh, and that does change how people behave so i think it is very much technology driven again that's both a challenge and an opportunity if you're mm-hmm. an australian business uh, it used to be you'd sort of look at the world and say we're really far from everywhere else so i can't sell offshore but i also don't have to worry about offshore being a threat because they're not going to come here 
Well, now, again, with, with the changes in technology, uh, certainly when you're in a services business, you no longer can look at it and say, hey, you know, my only competitor is the guy next door. No, mm-hmm. now you need to look globally and understand what is happening everywhere in the world because information flows quickly. And that, again, both challenge and opportunity come out of that. And that's interesting. I think, uh, you know, and that's similar to one of the shows we talked before about small business, big marketing. Small businesses now can access marketing and you know, market all over the world at a cheap rate than what they ever used to be able to do. Uh, so, so in some ways, you could say it has, it has dipped in the favor of small businesses. So I want to talk a little bit more about uh, the industry because you know, you're talking about massive growth that you want to achieve. And what sort of, what sort of industries uh, do you like to invest in? Is there, are there any ones that, that, that make it uh, are more able to, to get that rapid growth? Yeah, so we tend to focus very much on services-oriented businesses rather than manufacturing, very much for the reasons that we're talking about now. There's an opportunity to scale uh, much more readily and take advantage of global opportunities. Mm. Uh, I and like service businesses. I like, yeah, more, more service uh, software, uh, education, things that are more sort of knowledge-based than product-based. Now, that yeah. being said, we have invested in product businesses, too, so it's not to, not, not to ignore that. But probably 80% of what we do is more of a B2B focus and much more service-oriented. So specifically, yeah. we've done a lot in healthcare and tend to like healthcare. It's an industry where smaller players can be disruptive and carve out a niche because of the challenges within healthcare, uh, education and training, software. Uh, those are all industries where we have invested a lot of time and money uh, backing some really good managers uh, in Australia. And can you give me an example of, of, of the, say, a business? Is there anyone that would, a business that the listeners would know uh, that you could describe a little bit the journey that you took on? Is there any sort sure. of popular yeah. brands? Yeah, probably the best known business that we invested in was a com- is a company called Retail Zoo, yeah. uh, which is a holding company for a couple of brands that your listeners would be very familiar with, Boost Juice being the most well-known. Uh, that's a company that we invested in back in 2010. It was actually the first investment that we made when we set up our Australian operations. And as, as folks would know, that was a business that was founded by uh, a husband and wife, Janine and Jeff Alice, uh, back in 2000, grew the business beautifully, brought on some investors over time uh, as they grew the business. And as they got to 2010, they sort of hit a similar inflection point to what I described earlier, where they were sitting there saying, all right, the world is changing. The investors that we brought on originally were great as we were in startup mode, but we're not in startup mode anymore. We've That's, grown the business yeah. uh, to, to be a very successful business, and we need, you know, we think that we can continue to grow. we built a beautiful management team and a beautiful infrastructure to support growth, uh, and we want to scale that up. So we want to grow Boost, but we also want to grow some other brands, and we're going to need some capital and some expertise to help us do that. And we think maybe even if we can go out and buy a couple of other businesses to sort of take advantage of our great back office, that would be interesting as well. So you, you so, just, did you just uh, roll into a Boost Juice and you know have an, an orange apple carrot after a gym workout and think <laughs> this has really got got miles in it is that uh, is that as simple as it was no well, I, I wish it was uh, th- this was at the point where i was still you know 2000 we closed the deal in 2010 so the work yeah. was really done in 2009 uh, i had not yet moved here with my family I was commuting back and forth and and i i, I probably didn't appreciate the strength of the brand when I first got introduced to them. It was mm-hmm. actually a common friend who sort of, you know, again, I very similar to the message I just gave you describing what we're looking for. And he said to me, look, you need to meet Janine and Jeff Alice. You guys like franchising. Happen to be a sector we have a lot of experience in. They're the best franchisers in Australia. 
And, you know, to me, that was enough. I said, yeah, I'd love to meet them and just talk to them as soon as they described their business. And then, I, you know, we started driving around and looking at malls and talking to people and appreciating what the brand was, what the product was. It's not just the brand is great, but the product is also excellent. And, and, and the, you know, the, the, the economics of the business and the way they've created a business that really their franchisees do well, they do well. It's kind of a win-win for everybody. That's what we were looking for. And so, so the opportunity to partner with them was, was really a tremendous opportunity. So let's talk about numbers then, because I'm sure you are a numbers guy, being in private equity. So how many store, how many Boost Juice stores did they have when you, when you started with them? So when we made the investment in 2010, uh, I have to admit my numbers are my a bit 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 uh, bit sketchy. My recollection here, but for memory, they would have had about 180 Boost Juice locations wow. at the time. Um, we actually, and, and they had 11 salsas, which was a Mexican brand that they uh, were in yep, the process yep. of growing. Uh, over the course, we own, we, we own that business for what ended up being about four years. Um, by the time we sold that business, we probably had about 250 uh, boost locations domestically and probably had about another 120 internationally. And salsas, again, when we started with 11, we had about 40 or 45 when we sold the business. Yeah. We also uh, were growing another concept called Chibo, which is a coffee chain based in uh, South, or founded in South Australia that we were in the process of growing. And when we sold the business, we probably had about uh, about 17 or 18 Chibo locations. So which country? So in total. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Okay. I was going to say in total, we were you know domestically probably about 400, uh, almost 400 or 350 wow. locations. So you what was that almost tripling the size? Close enough. Uh, well, in terms of the number, probably doubling the number of locations yeah. uh, between the different brands over the whole period, but uh, but certainly the the the, rev- the revenues probably roughly hit the numbers I talked about earlier, roughly doubling revenues and almost tripling earnings. Yeah, and which countries did you did Boosters expand into? So the, the the biggest countries in terms of the number of stores uh, was uh, Singapore, Malaysia, the yeah. UK, uh, South Africa. Those were the three biggest ones, uh, but but uh, we were probably in about 15 different countries at the time that we exited the investment. Wow. And, and are there certain, you know, when you did that, like, why did you choose uh, those particular countries to expand into? Is there any, you know, is it just because, you know, you're a 10-hour flight from, from Malaysia and Singapore? Was there anything more to it? Uh, well, it was it was probably a bit more. Look, we were we were in Estonia, we were in Chile, we were kind of all over the oh, world. Wow. Uh, but but those countries specifically, the reasons those companies, those, sorry, those countries succeeded was good management. We we found very good local partners who had uh, certainly had the capital, but more importantly, had the the skill to run to grow and run a multi unit operation. And that's mm-hmm. that's the recipe for success. It, it's not no great epiphany here, but it's good management. And if you have good management and, and you know, have a bit of a risk appetite, which the, these folks clearly had, they were successful. Yeah. Okay. So look, that's interesting in terms of, so you've obviously done a lot of uh, work with companies in Australia, but you spent a hell of a long time in America. Uh, I know, can you, are there any broad generalizations of the way these businesses operate here versus the US versus other other parts of the world, do you, do you see any real differences, or are all business owners, you know, just kind of fall into those couple of categories? 
Well, in, in, so in terms of what they're looking for, I think generally, uh, I think you can generalize globally. Most small business owners uh, around the world do fall in those buckets, and it's one of the reasons why we believe our business model works globally, yeah. because we understand what these mid-market owners are looking for. Now, in terms of actually doing business in Australia versus the U.S. versus sort of Japan, for example, uh, it's very different. You know, mm. if you sort of think of the continuum, uh, if the U.S. is at one extreme in terms of, you know, mobility of workforce, the willingness of people to move, the, yeah. the, the risk appetite, those sort of things, I would say that's at one extreme, whereas, you know, the three companies, um, the countries I mentioned, Japan would be at the other extreme where you tend to have a very immobile workforce, you have, a, you know, uh, you have very little appetite for risk. Mm. Australia is in between, so certainly closer to the U.S. than Japan, but I would say as a general rule, uh, you, you tend to be less, Australians tend to be less uh, comfortable taking risk and, mm. and less, there's less workplace or uh, sort of personal mobility here. There's a, it's a blessing personally when you live here, but it's a, it is a challenge at times uh, professionally. So you think that it's, uh, it's because we've got such a good lifestyle here that we're not willing to, to give it up so easily and move around the world? Yeah, well, even within Australia. I mean, mm. you, you know, you don't see a lot of people who are saying, you know, I'm, you know, if I live in Sydney, it tends to be very parochial, right? If you're from Sydney, you love Sydney, and it's the best place in the world. And if you live in Melbourne, you would never move to Sydney. Now, there's exceptions to the rule. I'm generalizing. But, and, and there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, you know, we love Melbourne. I couldn't imagine living in Sydney. So yeah. I've, I've, I've bought into this. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay, now, just... Just going back a step, I'm I'm curious because uh, some of our listeners, a lot of our listeners, will be small business owners that own 100. percent And when I suppose you know you've been growing your business from scratch and you love doing things exactly the way you want to do it, and then you move into uh, selling at selling a good chunk to private equity, there must be difficulties and conflicts which come up along the way. What sort of what sort of potholes you know do you find on the journey, and how do you resolve them? There are huge potholes. Uh, there's not a question. <laughs> I so. if, yeah, and, yeah and, and you nailed it, right? Your question exactly is the right question, right? If you have started your business, you've grown it for, let's say, 20 years, right? You've made every decision. Obviously, you've made a lot more right decisions than wrong decisions because <laughs> otherwise you're still you wouldn't be business. here anymore. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and so you know what you're doing. You're good, you're good at what you do. And then now all of a sudden you've sold the business to me and you've got, you know, Simon Fagan showing up at a board meeting um, or, you know, we're having a call on a Monday morning and we're talking about what's going on and I challenge you. Yeah. And I say, you know, well, you said this, you know, have you thought about this other issue? Your natural reaction is going to be, who's Simon, right? Yeah, I understand <laughs> that I sold a mistake in my business, but he's been thinking about my business for six months. I've been thinking yeah. about my business for 20 years. Yeah. So it's just, I, I, and I don't know nearly, I will never know nearly as much as you business owner will know. And so there is always that challenge of how can I add value? How can I sort of, you know, uh, be able to build a relationship with you that we can debate issues without sort of overstepping our bounds. Mm. And that is the challenge. The best way to do that, I find, is, first of all, it starts, there's two very basic elements. One is we do a lot of hard work to try and get as smart as we can, right? I yeah. still, at the end of the day, if I'm brilliant about your, understanding your business, I'm going to know 1% of what you know, mm. maybe 2% if I get really lucky or you get a, an easier business to understand. Yeah. But I acknowledge that, right? My value is not going to be, let's use the boost juice example, I'm never going to tell, and I never told Janine or Jeff Alice, 
you should open a store at this mall, or you should charge this much for a smoothie, or you should put more strawberries and less blueberries into this into this smoothie. Right? Yeah. That's not what I'm capable of doing. And anytime I even start to go down that path, if I was going to go down that path, Janine or Jeff or any other member of the management team would instantly say, shut up. Right? Yeah. You don't know that. But that's not where I'm going to be helpful. Where mm-hmm. I'm going to be helpful is having conversations with them about, okay, we say we want to expand uh, into another category. What are the categories that make sense to expand into? Mm-hmm. Right? So let's, look, you know, let's think about things more, more rationally in terms of uh, you know, what, what's, the, what's the, the, the palette of the Australian consumer? What are they looking for? Or again, the question you asked earlier, what country should we expand into? Yeah. Why Malaysia and why not Indonesia? But does right? it get... You know, does for most do these discussions get emotional, though, as well? I mean, I can imagine people are very emotional about their businesses. Do you, do you come up against that? It, look, again, different personalities, different yeah. folks approach things differently. So at times it happens. But generally, again, if you can ap- approach things in a way that is very measured, mm. right, we're, we're going to do the homework. But let's not act irrationally. Let's go and figure out the answer. There's a right answer to this yeah. question. Yeah. Right? Again, let's use our example of Malaysia versus Indonesia. There's a right answer. The answer may be both. It may be neither. Mm. Right? Or maybe one or the other. So let's go and do the work. What will it cost? What's the demographic like? What locations? What kind of partners can we find? We can work through a process to come up with the right answer. And that's really yeah. what we do is help put, make sure that strategically our management teams and our, and our partners, right? We don't, typically don't own 100% of the business. We yeah. own a controlling stake, yeah. but that owner will stay involved. And so they're our partner. And so with our partner, what is the right way to do it? Our job is to make sure we're coming up with the right strategy, making sure that the capital is available to execute the plan because capital should never, our view is capital should never get in the way of a successful outcome. Yeah. And so provide the capital and provide the sounding board. And I'm guessing that you also do, you know, before someone goes into a deal with you, I'm guessing, you know, you do a lot of work in terms of, you know, setting expectations and, and how things are going to run. Absolutely. Yeah. And it goes both ways. Yeah. I mean, you know, there is a, you know, due diligence is the, is, is, is the term, right, that we use. Yeah. But it is, it is a long process. It doesn't, these things don't, from the day I meet a, an owner to the day we actually complete an investment is not a one-week process, right? It depends on the company. And again, we can get into this if you want to, you know, what makes them things move faster or slower. But typically mm. it's a, you know, four to six month, call it dating process, right? Yeah. We're getting to know each other and we're spending a lot of time together. And it's two ways. I'm trying to understand your business, but you need to understand my business and you need to talk to, you know, people who have gone down your path with me. So if you're going to do a deal with us, you know, we've already made just in Australia in the, in the years we've been here, we bought about 15 different companies, mm. invested in 15 different companies. So there's at least 15 people in Australia who have done what you're potentially doing if you're talking to me. Yeah. And I'll give you their names and numbers and say, yeah. call them. Yeah, that helps. That sure helps. So let's talk about it from a slightly different uh, viewpoint, because a lot of our listeners will be people who are currently investing in the share market, in residential property or whatever they're doing. So explain a little bit about, uh, well, first of all, where the source of your money comes from, Riverside. Do you just have a couple of billion dollars in the bank or does it come from investors? And number, and then number two, how, would people, how could people invest in private equity as an individual? Uh, so in terms of our money, and, and, and we're probably pretty typical in this sense, most private equity firms raise their money predominantly from institutional investors around the world. Yeah. So Riverside is much more complicated than I'm about to sort of state it, but let's just focus on the Asia-Pac 
portion of Riverside, which is the part that, that I manage, we've got a U.S. dollar denominated $235 million fund, so roughly yeah. $300 million Australian. Yeah. We raise that money from institutional investors around the world, so that includes superannuation funds, endowments, pension yeah. plans, sovereign yeah. wealth funds, etc., who, who they have strategies around how they want to invest their money, and they'll put a portion of that into private equity. Right. So we, we raise money largely from those institutions. We do have some individuals that invest in our funds. Uh, it, in the aggregate, it'd be you know five or ten percent of the money that we raise yeah. uh, would come from individuals. Uh, but as I said, it's mostly institutions. Right. So people, and that's very yeah, so, typical. Yeah. So people would get their access through whatever super fund they've got if their super fund actually invests in private equity. Which and most super funds. Yeah. So you know, use Australia Super as an example. You know, they'd have probably about seven or eight percent of their capital under management allocated to what they would euphemistically term alternative investments. So that would be private equity, venture capital, property, infrastructure, things like that, hedge funds. But a good, you know, so good. And you know, they've got you know, what are they up to? About forty or fifty billion dollars, maybe more, eighty billion dollars of, yeah. of assets under management. So, you know, eight percent of that is you know six or seven billion dollars that they're investing in alternatives. And I will say also that over the years, as a as a planner, I have come across uh, different places, for example, Macquarie or MLC, that that will also batch up these private equity and cut it into small pieces, so that even mm-hmm. the the mum and dad sort of retail investor can invest for almost as little as twenty thousand dollars. So they do. They do exist. Um, they're, they're far and few in between, though. Yeah, that, that, that is true, although I suspect that that actually is going to increase. I think those opportunities mm. will change. I, I think the, the regulations globally are starting to make it a bit easier. Uh, one of the reasons why a lot of private equity firms haven't accepted money from uh, individuals historically is it's just very complex. The regulatory framework makes it very difficult because you have to be a qualified investor, uh, which means, as you would well know, yeah. minimum incomes and wealth levels and those sorts of things, because it's a very illiquid investment. When right. you invest in a Riverside fund, you're basically signing up for a 10-year commitment. Oh, wow. Uh, and that's not unique to us. That's private equity. So yeah. 10 to 12 years, typically, you, you, your, your money goes in over time and out over time. So it's mm. not like it all goes in day one and you don't see it for 10 years, but you have a contractual commitment. And so that money is spoken for, for an extended period of time. So you have to be comfortable with that illiquidity. So I get, the, the, yeah. So I guess that really lends itself to superannuation investments to a large extent because, you know, they've got people who've got very long-term investment horizons uh, in their super. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And that's why, and the same thing, you know, the future fund, for example, right, which is worrying about being able to make distributions in 2035 or whatever yeah. it is, right? They've got a very large allocation of private equity. Uh, university endowments tend to put a lot of money in because, into superannuation because they're, you know, again, they're worried about, you know, can I build a new, you know, a new science lab in 20 years' time, right? So that, you know, when you have long term holds, it works well. If you're yeah. worried about, look, I want a great return, but I'm going to need my money in two years' time because I want to buy a, you know, a house or a boat or pay for my kids' school fees, well, private equity doesn't really work yeah. for you. Okay, well, we're speaking to Simon Fagel, the managing partner and fund manager at Riverside Company. Topic of the show is scale me up big time. Simon, we're coming to the end of our show, but uh, one of the things that we're trying to achieve in our show is helping uh, people make smart decisions. So, uh, based on what we've talked about, I'd like to hear from you your three uh, top tips for business owners of any size uh, who want to rapidly grow their business. Sure. Um, 
so look, we've I've been doing this for over twenty years now, and and seen a lot of businesses. And the things that 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 I think are really important, you got to start with very simply with the foundations. If you want to grow, if you want to build a house, you start by building strong foundations. So, what yeah. do strong foundations mean? If you're a business owner, it means that you have good structures, good systems, good processes. It's, mm. it's the basic blocking and tackling. If you're not closing out monthly numbers, if you're running you know, personal expenses through your business, if you're not doing budgeting, things like that, you're not building a foundation for a business, for a professional business. And if you want to scale, right, it means you want to grow. You often can't do that on your own. You're going to need other people in the business, so you need to make sure you've got the right foundation to support that. So books, records, accounting systems, CRMs, those sorts of things yeah. are essential. So that's the first tip I would give you. Number yep. two. Second tip I give you is don't do it. Try and do it on your own. Have outside mm-hmm. advisors. Have a whether it's a board of advisors or a board of directors. That's a legal nuance there. That have somebody who cares about you and cares about your business who is involved in your business. Yep. From an outside expert expertise. And the third thing I would say is don't be afraid to invest in your own business. Mm-hmm. Don't take the view that a hey, a dollar that I spend on a good CFO is a dollar out of my pocket. Those investments pay off in spades. So hire the best CFO you can afford. Buy, you know, hire a really good sales manager. Invest in your business. Don't be afraid to spend some money because if you do it well, you will get paid off exponentially. Excellent. Okay, Simon, look, thanks very much for your time today. Uh, we're going to publish this podcast soon and hopefully uh, you may, it may be useful for you to share in your base as well. I might even do a, uh, get a transcript of it. Uh, but thanks very much for your time today. And uh, we will uh, hopefully speak to you again in the show sometime in the future. And with pleasure. Thanks very much for the opportunity, Ruben, and best of luck to you and to your clients. <laughs> Thanks, Simon. See you. Bye-bye. No worries. Take care. Bye. Okay, now it's time for my Propeller Head of the Week. And the Propeller Head of the Week this week is about assessing your level of cover for health insurance. Health insurance premiums are always going up and you need to be really careful that the cover that you have is the cover that you need. Now, I suggest people go to choosewell.com.au, which is a fantastic service uh, to help you choose the right level of cover and make sure that you are paying premiums that represent value for your situation. Okay then, folks, that's the end of the show today. Thank you very much for listening. I welcome you to uh, leave us a message on Facebook. I've recently uh, commenced a Finance Hour Facebook site, which you can find. Uh, And also, if you find us on iTunes, please leave us a review. Thank you very much, and we'll see you next week.